0: episode 14 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your cool-as-a-cucumber host, Kristen Haas, aka Kiki Writes. This episode marks the beginning of season two for the 1968 series, so obviously I'll be talking about the first two episodes of the season. Episode one, A Thousand Pardons You're Dead, and episode two, To Hell with Babe Ruth. I'm going to apologize right now because you're probably gonna hear the chair that I'm sitting in creaking a lot because I move around too much when I talk and the chair is old and I am fat, so it's gonna make some noise. I usually record sitting on the floor because it minimizes the noise that I make when I, when I talk, but recently my knees have been so bad that I don't think I can actually sit on the floor and do this recording comfortably because again, old and fat. So with that said, Let's go to Hawaii. What do we got? Not sure, Steve. Looked like hit and run. It's 3.45 a.m., Lieutenant. How does 5 fit in? I found this in her bag. Receipt for $10,000 GI insurance. Huh. Dated this afternoon. Any sign of the money? None. What else? From the looker... The way she was hit, it's like she was face down in the middle of the road. Season 2, Episode 1, A Thousand Pardons, You're Dead, air date September 24th, 1969, directed by Nicholas Colasanto, this is the first of four for him, story by Mel Goldberg, this will be the fourth of twelve for him, and Paul Harbour, this is his only Hawaii 5 credit, and teleplay by Mel Goldberg. An incredibly merry widow turns up at a bar with 10 grand from her husband's military death benefit. Betsy reminds Anna she's supposed to be in mourning, but Anna can't help herself. She's too excited for the money. She asks Betsy and her roommate Yoko to have a drink with her to celebrate, but Yoko declines. Betsy joins her but warns Anna not to keep the man waiting for his money. Anna tells Betsy to tell the man that patience is a virtue. And it's one the man apparently doesn't have, because when Anna finally arrives home hours later and very intoxicated, he knocks her out, takes the money, and then runs her over. On the scene, Steve is told that they've found a receipt for GI death insurance, but no cash. It's also curious because it looks like the woman was lying face down in the road when she was run over. Steve goes to see Betsy at the bar, and after complaining about the state of bar ownership in Hawaii as well as the rest of her life, Betsy tells Steve that Anna was a nice girl who met herself a soldier and got herself married a few months ago, and she lost a good employee when she did. She also denies that Anna had a lot of money on her. Betsy seems shocked that Anna is dead until Steve leaves. Then she doesn't look so surprised. At Anna's apartment, Steve instructs Kona to find out which cab company Anna used to leave the bar and then talks to her roommate Yoko. She tells Steve that she never met Anna's husband. They met and married on the Big Island before he went back to Vietnam. She tells Steve that Anna had a lot of cash on her the previous night. She wasn't bragging about it, but she wasn't hiding it either. Yoko is upset that Anna is dead, but it seems to Steve that she's not telling him everything. At the office, he tells Danny that he's sure someone is lying. He then sends him undercover as a soldier to find out who. Danny hooks up with Yoko at Betsy's, acting like he's a buddy of Anna's late husband. He says he came out to talk to her, only to find out that she's dead too. Yoko refuses to discuss it and is only in the mood for a good time, which Danny obliges. They eventually get tipsy enough to go back to her apartment for another drink, where Yoko breaks down and confesses that something is going on. Three girls from Betsy's all married GIs who ended up killed in action, and then they all ended up dead too. The next day, Dano has a hangover along with his information. Steve sends Kono to City Hall to check on the marriage certificates of the dead G.I.s and dead girls, and sends Chin Ho to investigate the G.I.s' death benefits, specifically if all of the dead wives were beneficiaries. He then teases Danny about his hangover, telling him that he could have dumped the booze in a nearby plant. However, Danny refuses to be a killer. At City Hall, Kono finds the records he's looking for under the suspicious eye of the clerk, James Watanoo, who makes a phone call voicing his concerns just as soon as Kono leaves. Meanwhile, Chen Ho gets a chilly reception from Sergeant Sims in regards to the death benefit records he's looking for. Danny continues his undercover work, spending time on the beach with Yoko, carefully prodding her about Anna. Yoko is defensive for the most part, but hypothetically concedes that maybe Anna married for insurance money. She won't say any more because she's afraid. At Betsy's, Watanu tells Betsy about Kono's visit and that he doesn't like the idea of being implicated in murder. Betsy gets a phone call from the man and informs him that their scheme is off. She hangs up and relays what she said to Watanu, which only makes him more nervous. He leaves Betsy's and runs into Sergeant Sims, who demands he ride with him. They drive out to a secluded spot where a nervous Watanu fumbles for his heart pills, which Sims knocks away. He then prevents Watanu from getting his pills, causing him to have a heart attack and die on the side of the road. I think we found the man. And so is Steve. He confronts Sims in his office with a hunk of tire that came from a jeep that he signed out, a hunk of tire that was found by the body of a dead city hall clerk named Watanu. He points out that the marriage certificates for the GIs that he signed out death benefits for all went through his office. Sims is defensive, but Steve isn't rattled. Danny once again presses Yoko, but she figures out that he's five o, leaving him on the beach after reading him the riot act the office, Danny feels like a failure because he wasn't able to get enough information from Yoko, but Steve thinks they have enough, and he lays out the scenario. The G.I.s killed in action go through Sims' office. Watanoo predates the marriage certificates for the G.I. and one of Betsy's girls, who Sims puts as beneficiary on the insurance. The girl cashes in, and everybody gets their cut. The only thing that doesn't figure are the murders. At least until Kono and Chen Ho find out something about Sims's past, but I'm not going to spoil Sims's past for you because that kind of is the linchpin for the entire scheme. And Steve also confronts Sims about his past during a very tense game of pool, and it it really is a scene that you should watch. It's it's quite good. But if we can go back to the beginning, the way this episode starts and the way that it plays out, it's very much a Piece by piece thing. Not only do we get everything piece by piece, but so does Five O. Because there are a lot of working parts in this scheme, and we get them little by little. We start off with Anna, who's played by Loretta Swit, coming into Betsy's place, which it's not called Betsy's. I think it's called Charlie's, but Betsy runs it. Anyway, and she's dressed in like full morning gear. So she's got like the black overcoat. She's got the black wide brim hat with the veil. So you're like, why is this widow going into this bar? And then once she gets inside, she rips off the hat and the overcoat, and she's wearing this little white mini dress. Yoko wears uh, a mini dress later, too. And they are taking mini dresses to the extreme because, honestly, I don't know how anybody back in 1960s bent over and didn't show the whole world everything. But anyway, she's just absolutely ecstatic over getting this money. And Betsy tells her to tone it down. Now, Betsy is played by Barbara Nichols, So she's one of those old school, big, brassy blondes. Honestly, she's who I should have been when I grew up. I love her and everything. Anyway, that's when we forget the first instance of the man. Because Anna asks Yoko and Betsy to have a drink to celebrate getting this money. And Yoko declines and leaves. But Betsy drinks with her and, and tells her, you know, you need to get the money to the man. And so when Anna finally goes home and she's three sheets and uh, she drops her purse and money goes everywhere and she's on the ground picking it up and we see the legs of this guy come into view and so we never see the man, his face in this scene, just the back of him. And Anna recognizes him. He hits her and knocks her out. And what's funny is that it's like the sound effect is for a slap, but it must have been like the ultimate slap because it knocks her out cold. So he must have had a backhand worthy of my mother. Anyway, he picks up all of the money, gets into a vehicle, which you can kind of see where the, because it's back in the dark and the headlights come on, and you can kind of see from the outline that it's a Jeep. But it's really kind of hard to tell. And while she's unconscious in the road, he just runs her over. So at first you think, okay, there's obviously something hinky going on here with this woman getting death benefits and not obviously not grieving and this mention of the man, and then she's murdered. And you kind of think, okay, she was killed because she defied the man. She didn't get him his money when he told her to. Five O is called out just because um, they find the receipt for the death benefit, the military death benefit. And apparently they make the connection to Betsy's because Steve goes to talk to Betsy. And the way they talk, it's obvious that they know each other. How are you, Betsy? Don't ask. Business couldn't be worse. The booze on this lousy rock is too expensive. I can't even water it down anymore since I got pinched. And that lousy boyfriend of mine just banged up my new car. Now I got bursitis in my right toe. The doctor says it's the gout, but I don't believe him. You know something, McGarrett? In this lousy world, for every ounce of pleasure, there's a pound of pain. I'm sorry I asked, Betsy. There's like a subtle implication that the girls who are hostesses, and I'm doing air quotes with that, are actually prostitutes. And that's why Five O, and particularly Steve, knows Betsy, is because it's kind of like she's the madam. And so there's this implication that the girls that work there are prostitutes. It's never explicitly said that they're sex workers. It's just kind of implied that. But Steve talks to Betsy. Betsy is totally shocked to hear that Anna's dead. She got herself married to a soldier. She lost a good hostess because of that. She had everything to live for, so it's hard to believe that she's dead. She doesn't know if Anna had a lot of money on her is what she tells Steve, which we know is a lie. So when Steve leaves, the really great thing about it is because it's Barbara Nichols. She's totally going along with, oh my gosh, this is so awful. I can't believe she's dead. This is such a shock. And then as Steve leaves, you see the change come over her face. She's not surprised that Anna is is dead. So she, it, you're kind of wondering just how involved she is. We know she's part of the scheme, but it's like, how much does she know? So Steve ends up going over to Yoko and Anna's apartment so he can talk to Yoko. And the apartment has the greatest furniture it is Blue and green and yellow flowers in that bold 60s print. It is absolutely hideous and I love it. I wish I had it. But Steve talks to Yoko and Yoko says she doesn't know Anna's husband. She never met him. They got married on the Big Island. He went back to Vietnam. She knows that Anna had a lot of money last night, but she wasn't with her last night. She left to go entertain a gentleman friend and was just getting home. And it's like, I don't know, probably nine o'clock in the morning. She basically feigns a certain amount of ignorance about the whole situation which obviously makes Steve suspect, and that's why he sends Danny undercover. Now, the fun thing about Danny being undercover with Yoko is, first of all, when they first meet in the bar, which is obviously set up, he he seeks her out and gets a drink with her, and when he tries to press her on Anna, she just snaps at him. Do you remember Eddie? I mean, they met in here. Do you remember? No. A guy about 5'10 with reddish blonde hair. No, I never met him. What kind of girl was this, Anna? Hmm. I remember how Eddie talked about her. Look, I don't know how Eddie talked about her, and I don't give a rap. I don't want to talk about her. Okay, I'm sorry. I just thought. That I was... Look, if you came here for a good time, groovy, I'm your girl. But if you came here to talk about your buddy and Anna, no thanks. I mean, if I want to get depressed, I'll do it on my own time. So, which is it? Okay. Here's to good times. Through <sighs> tonight. And this pretty much sets up their entire interaction. Whenever he talks about Anna, she only gives a little bit and then becomes really defensive and shuts down. You never really know how much Yoko actually knows and how much she just suspects. And really, Danny's whole undercover operation, aside from the fact that most of the time is spent with Yoko on the beach. So you get Yoko who's played by Barbara Luna in a bikini and Danny in little swim trunks. So there's a little hubba hubba for anyone who's inclined. The whole undercover operation is kind of a failure because he really doesn't get very much information from Yoko overall. But we do end up getting the great scene after he first meets her at the bar and takes her back to her apartment it's obvious they're very tipsy and you're kind of wondering how much of that Danny might be putting on until the next day when he's in the office and he is nursing a hangover with the old school Alka-Seltzer headache relief and they're teasing him well you ready to go back to work? yeah sure you know you really didn't have to drink that booze what do you do with it? You bought it in the plant. Steve, do you really expect me to go around killing plants? Better than killing yourself. Jenny, bring in another cup of coffee for Dano. Make it black. And as funny as that is, I don't know how ethically sound that is. How admissible is that evidence? Because she does admit that there were other girls from Betsy's who all married GIs who got killed in action and then they ended up dead. So now we know that Anna's death is not an isolated incident but how admissible is that evidence in court considering it was obtained while the officer in question was intoxicated? I don't know, but it gave us a a funny hangover scene, so I guess we'll just ignore the ethics of that. Meanwhile, since we know that there are other girls from Betsy's who have died after being married to GIs who died in action, Steve wants to know more about this angle. So he sends Kono to City Hall to investigate the marriage records and he sends Chin Ho to the military, I think it's to the army, to get the death record information, specifically the death benefits. City Hall, Kono is dealing with James Watanoo, who's played by James Hong. And the whole scene, first Watanoo shows him the files that he needs and he hovers for a minute. Kono is kind of like, can I help you? Shoo shoo, doing stuff. So Wantanu is sitting at his desk, very nervously watching Kono go through these records and make some notes. And while he does, he ends up taking these pills. And as soon as Kono leaves, he makes a phone call to someone we don't know, but he's obviously very concerned about what's happening. Then we see Chin Ho getting the death benefit records from Sergeant Sims in his office. And Sergeant Sims is a right dick about the whole thing. Let's see now. You want the records pertaining to Schroeder, Anderson, and McKay? I'd appreciate it, Sergeant. You understand that these records are in my charge? Yeah, of course. We're dealing with the semi-classified material here. I don't want them bandied about. What'd have to do, Sergeant. Come back with a warrant? Or maybe a personal request from the base commandant. Now look, mister, don't you try to pull rank on me. All I want to know is if these guys were killing action. If so, when? And who the beneficiary was? I'll give you the information. But in the future, I'll try to be a little more GI. Chin Ho is not impressed. We then see Watanu at Betsy's, and we find out that it was Betsy that he was on the phone with. So we're starting to get a a more defined idea of exactly who is involved in this scheme and how it works because he's very clear about the fact that he doesn't wanna be implicated for murder and Betsy's not too thrilled with it either. And then one of her girls comes up and says that the man is on the phone. So she goes and talks to the man. So you only see one side of the conversation and that's Betsy's and she's giving him what for and saying, we're done. We're not gonna do this anymore. And then she goes back and and tells Watson what happened. And again, he is very nervous. He's taking his heart pills. And she, Betsy is very sweet to him and offers him, I have a room upstairs if you want to stay, lay down for a minute. And he's like, no, no, I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to leave. And when he does, he walks outside and there's Sergeant Sims. And he ends up going for his fatal ride with Sergeant Sims. And that's kind of when you figure out that, oh, here's the man. It's obviously going to be Sergeant Sims. And the scene where he sort of in a roundabout way kills Watanu is just so malicious and cruel because he pulls over to the side of the road and they're sitting there and Watanu is telling him that, you know, basically assuring him that he's not going to say anything, everything is fine, and Sergeant Sims kind of is just going along with it until his heart starts acting up. And then when he goes to get his pills, he just swats the the bottle away from him. And when Watanu gets out of the, the jeep, He tries to find his pills, and it's great because Sims is right along with him, like, oh, here, let me help you, and he's manhandling him over to where the pills are, and then he picks them up before Watanoo can, and he just chucks them, and he's like, oh, no, and then he kind of throws him to the ground and leaves him to die. He gets in the Jeep, and he starts to drive, like, he kind of does a circle to come back around to see because for a minute, you, you, you think that he's going to run over Watanu like he'd done Anna, but he doesn't. He basically does a circle, comes around to make sure that Watanu's dead and then takes off. So it's a very cruel death, very heartless. And you, you kind of get a sense of exactly just how disposable people are to him. But this also kind of ruins his scheme because Watanu was an integral part of it Betsy provided the girls, Watanu provided the predated marriage certificates, and Sims was the one that altered the beneficiary records for the death benefits of the GIs that were already killed in action. So he's lost a major link in his scheme with the death of Watanu, which Steve kind of points out when he comes to the office because we don't see them find Watanu's body. We don't see them find the piece of tire. All of that is just Steve telling Sergeant Sims, here's why I'm in your office. We found this evidence next to this man. And Sims is kind of like, well, I go out there all the time. I'm constantly driving back and forth. Could have been there any time. Don't remember any bodies. But Steve does say, this guy did the marriage certificates for the soldiers that ended up dead. So, you know, there is a connection here. We're not stupid. So this all leads to the the scene where Yoko and Danny end up having it out at the beach and Yoko calls him a liar because he didn't tell her the truth about who he was and Danny counters with, you weren't, haven't been telling me the truth and she's just like, you, you got no ground to stand on here, buddy. And she takes off. And Danny feels really, really bad about this. And I think his issue is twofold in that A, he didn't get the information that he thought he should get from Yoko, and B, I think he really was a little sweet on her. Maybe not. As she said, he had her feeling like she was 16 again. I don't think he was quite that smitten, but I do believe he was a little bit sweet on her, and that's part of the reason why he was having such a hard time with having his cover blown was he didn't want to hurt her, ultimately. He wanted to get the information, but he he didn't want to hurt her, and that's what happened. But Steve says, this is it's okay because we do have enough information. Here's how this scheme is playing out. But the one thing that hangs him up is that he can't figure out the murders. And that's when Kono and Chin Ho come in with the background on Sergeant Sims. Because it turns out that he's an expert soldier. And if, he, if there are medals, he has them. And he served in Vietnam and all of this stuff. But there's one thing that puts that last piece of the puzzle in. The one spoilery thing I will say is that... We never see what happens to Betsy. Betsy is obviously an integral part of this whole plot and yet we never see what happens to her because obviously Sims is the biggest fish but it still would have been interesting to see what would have happened when Steve ultimately went to go arrest Betsy since they know each other. So if you're looking for that loose end to be tied up you're not going to see it on screen. So without giving too much away I will say like I said the pool shooting scene is absolutely great and we do see Yoko again. She turns out to be an integral part of the plan in order to catch Sims, and the very ending, let's just call it overkill. Since I've already mentioned so many of their names, why don't I just go ahead and talk about the guest cast? Sergeant Sims was played by Harry Guardino. We'll see him in three more episodes he played Hamilton Berger on The New Perry Mason. That was the 1970s one with Monty Markham as Perry Mason. He was Monty Nash on Monty Nash, and he was Danny Taylor on The Reporter. He also showed up in The Untouchables, Naked City, Outer Limits, Night Gallery, McLeod, Get Christy Love, Future Cop, Fantasy Island, Police Story, Hotel Hunter, and Murder, She Wrote. He was in the movies Every Which Way But Loose, Any Which Way You Can, Dirty Harry, Lovers and Other Strangers. Rhino, and Five Branded Women, and he was in the TV movies, Valley of Mystery, Indict and Convict, Having Babies, and Pleasure Cove. As I said, Yoko was played by Barbara Luna. We'll see her in one more episode. She was Teresa Modesto on Zorro. She also showed up in Perry Mason, Bonanza, Gunsmoke, Big Valley, The Untouchables, Hawaiian Eye, Outer Limits. She was in the Mirror Mirror episode of Star Trek, Wild Wild West, Mannix Cannon, Chips, Buck Rogers, and Charlie's Angels. She was in the movies Ship of Fools, Five Weeks in a Balloon, and Cry Tough. And she was in the TV movies Women in Chains, The Hanged Man, Brenda Starr, and Lady Against the Odds. Betsy was played by Barbara Nichols. She was ginger on Love That Jill with Anne Jeffries and Robert Sterling. She showed up in The Twilight Zone, Beverly Hillbillies, Wild Wild West, Batman. She was made Marilyn in two Archer episodes. Green Acres, The Doris Day Show, Adam 12, An Emergency. And she was in the movies, Charlie and the Angel, The Disorderly Orderly, Dear Heart, House of Women, and Where the Boys Are. James Watanee was played by James Hong. We will see him in three more episodes. He was also in an episode of the 2010 Hawaii 5 reboot. He has a total of 439 credits, according to IMDb, going back to 1954. So I'm only going to hit a few. He was Frank Chin on the short-lived series Jigsaw John with Jack Warden. He showed up on Bonanza, Hawaiian Eye, Wagon Train, Perry Mason, The New Perry Mason, Man from Uncle, I Spy, Kung Fu, and Kung Fu The Legend Continues, All in the Family, Cannon, Starsky and Hutch, Mod, Soap, Dynasty, Falcon Crest, Manimal, A-Team, Airwolf, Miami Vice, Hunter, China Beach, MacGyver, Magnum P.I., Doogie Howser, Diagnosis Murder, Millennium, Alias, West Wing, Malcolm in the Middle, and Elementary. He showed up in the movies Tango and Cash, Golden Child, Big Trouble in Little China, Kung Fu Panda, Balls of Fury, Mulan, Operation Dumbo Drop, Blade Runner, Airplane, Chinatown, and Flower Drum Song. And he was in the TV movies The Last Sharknado, Trinity Good Heart, Framed, Last Flight Out, The Karen Carpenter Story, The Hustler of Muscle Beach, and The Return of Frank Cannon. Anna was played by Loretta Switt. We'll see her in three more episodes. She's best known for playing Major Margaret Houlihan on M.A.S.H. She also was in Mission Impossible, Gunsmoke, Bonanza, Bold Ones, The New Doctors, Ironside, Super Train, Love Boat, Murder, She Wrote, and Diagnosis Murder. She turned up in the movies SOB, Race with the Devil, and Freebie in the Bean. And she was in the TV movies Games Mother Never Taught You, First Affair, The Execution, and A Killer Among Friends, which I believe I only watched because Loretta foot was in it. Lieutenant Fujita was played by Clarence Garcia. This is his second episode of eight. We saw him previously in the box. And the bank vice president was played by Lee Anderson. This is his only credit. The director was Nicholas Colasanto, which you probably best know him as Coach on Cheers. In addition to the four episodes of Hawaii 5 that he directed, he also directed seven episodes of run for your life five episodes of garrison's gorillas three episodes of felony squad four episodes of the name game two episodes of colombo and two episodes of the misadventures of sheriff lobo and if i'm correct i do believe i read somewhere i think it was in an, a MeTV article that nicholas Colasanto is partially responsible for Columbo getting the dog we've already talked about one of our writers mel goldberg in previous episodes our other teleplay critic goes to paul harbour he only has three writing credits He has the story and screenplay credit for The Kidnappers and the screenplay credit for Terror is a Man. He also has 16 acting credits, including I Led Three Lives, Highway Patrol, and Harbor Command. And that is A Thousand Pardons You're Dead. This episode's okay. It definitely has its moments. I love the whole guest cast. I love a scheme that has a lot of working parts to it because those usually fall apart in such a spectacular manner that it can't be anything other than entertaining. But overall, there's something lackluster to me about this episode because usually before I record, I watch every episode twice, at least twice. And I'll be honest, the second time I was watching this episode, I was kind of bored. It's definitely fine. It's a, it's a solid episode. It's a good episode, but it's not an episode that I think think really lives up to repeated viewings quite as much as some of the other ones do. But you're definitely not gonna waste your time by giving it at least one watch. I mean, Barbara Luna and James MacArthur romping on the beach in bathing suits, that alone warrants a viewing. Can I help you something, brother? Got something Steve go. Must have come over that fence like a cat. This is the best print we got, Steve. Not much of an imprint. Must have worn slippers or sandals or something. Get an imprint of it anyway. Right. And the killer wore black. Must have torn his pants and shirt or something on the barbed wire. Unusual material. How I'd guess? Let's see what the lab boys come up with. We'll do it. <laughs> some kind, never seen anything like it. Throat's badly lacerated. How long has he been dead? Let's see, almost noon now, A couple hours at the outside. Steve, eight sticks of dynamite missing with enough fuses and caps to detonate them. Somebody wants that dynamite pretty bad. What do you think we've got, some kind of kook? We got something, brother, we got something. Episode two, To Hell with Babe Ruth, air date October 1st, 1969, directed by Nicholas Colasanto. This is the second of four for him and the second one in this episode. Written by Anthony Lawrence. This will be the first of nine for him. An apparent ninja hops a fence, crosses a compound, and breaks into an explosive storage. He begins helping himself to some dynamite when he's interrupted by a security guard. He kills him by throwing something at him, which slices his throat. The ninja then flees. At the scene in the aftermath, 5 finds a light footprint that isn't much of a lead and a scrap of black fabric that might be, given its unusual quality. The wounds on the victim's neck are odd, and they aren't sure what would have caused them. What they do know is that eight sticks of dynamite, caps, and fuses are missing. Steve has a look around and finds a strange metal star embedded in the wall across from the storeroom. It could be the murder weapon. Our ninja steals a car, but he doesn't seem to know how to drive very well. He knocks out a cop who tries to stop him and speeds away. The cop later reports to Steve that the man was Japanese and a karate expert. Dano comes in with the evidence from the murder scene. There's no prints on the murder weapon, and the only blood is the victim's. Nothing came from the footprint except that it was made by someone wearing a kind of slipper. And the black cloth is hand-woven, at least 30 years old, and made in Japan. Steve tells Dano to get in touch with the police in the town where the cloth was made and ask for help. He then asks Jenny to get a description from the officer of the car thief and put out an APB. Our ninja goes to a boarded-up house and breaks in. There he accesses a secret room and finds, among other things, a pair of scythes, which we then see someone else using against someone with a kendo stick in a martial arts school. Jerry, the instructor with the scythes, wins the demonstration and then talks to Steve and Chin Ho, who've brought the strange metal star with them. Jerry identifies it as a shuriken or throwing star, a weapon that used to be used by ninjas, but that's a lost art. Kodo comes in with an ID on our ninja. It seems that until he escaped, he was a resident in a mental health facility. Our ninja goes to a shop, yells at a poor young clerk, calling her by her mother's name and asking for a man named Yuko and going on about the time of glory. He ends up taking a clock and the girl. According to the psychiatrist at the mental health facility, the man, known simply as Nagata, was admitted the day before Pearl Harbor in a kind of catatonic state, and he's been hospitalized for the 28 years since. Diagnosed as acutely psychotic, paranoid, and with amnesia, he has a slim chance of recovery. There's no knowledge of his background, and until he escaped, he was a totally passive patient, showing no signs of aggression or martial arts skills. Dano calls Steve with the news of the missing girl. Her name is Heather Nagata. At the shop, Steve and Dano talk to Yuko Takuma, Heather's uncle. Takuma explains how he found the shop, called around looking for Heather before calling the police, and then shows them the kind of clock that was taken. Steve tells Takuma about Nagata's escape, but Takuma insists that Nagata was killed at Pearl Harbor. He then tells Steve about the abandoned house. There, Nagata has Heather tied up while he's binding together the dynamite to make a bomb and quoting Robert Louis Stevenson. Heather can't convince him that she's not her mother, Kimiko. It sets him off on a rant about restoring imperial rule, and he only stops when Heather starts to cry. He looks through her purse and finds a mirror. When he looks into it, he sees a young man. Both Nagata and Heather are gone when 5 gets to the house, but on the wall is a message. To hell with Babe Ruth. Apparently, This is what the Japanese pilots yelled as they attacked Pearl Harbor. They find a map and Steve realizes that Nagata is going to do his own Pearl Harbor attack. Takuma attempts ritualistic suicide, but survives long enough to tell Steve that he and Nagata were both members of the Black Dragons, a political strong arm group that attempted to bring about imperial rule and that the Black Dragons were to participate in the attack on Pearl Harbor. But he dies before he can tell Steve what Nagata's mission was supposed to be. Five-O and the military look at the Pearl Harbor attack to try to deduce Nagata's mission. It turns out that the answer lies hidden in the map that they found. He's going to blow up Sand Hill, and given the full gas tanks there, it will take out half of Honolulu, and there's now only eight hours until he does. They've got until 7.55 a.m. December 7th to stop him. Okay, so let's just get this out of the way first and foremost. We have three Japanese characters in this episode— Only one of them is actually Asian. Takuma is played by Will Kaluva, who we've already seen play an Asian character, Philip Lowe, in the episode by the numbers. He is not Asian. And Nagata is played by Mark Leonard, also not Asian, best known as Sarek, Spot's father. So yes, both Will Kaluva and Mark Leonard have the uh, the eye makeup going on. Mark Leonard's is a little more pronounced than Will Kaluva's. But yeah, you definitely, he's got the prosthetic eyelids happening. And not to the degree of Ricardo Montalban. Obviously he can blink, but it's still really, really distracting. And it's really, really obvious. And it really, really detracts from an otherwise very interesting episode. He's also been aged up a bit. Poor Mark Leonard, destined to play everyone's father. Not necessarily too much old age makeup, but he does wear glasses. And he they've put some gray in his hair to show the the passage of those 28 years. So he looks old enough to be Heather Nogata's father. And Mark Leonard's performance is fine. Will Kaluva's performance is fine. They're both quite good in the episode. The thing is, is that they just shouldn't have been playing the roles. And it is an interesting episode. The premise of it is interesting in that we have a man who is Obviously, suffering from severe mental illness, trying to fulfill an objective that's 28 years too late. And he has, he does play it as though he has 28 years of missing time because he doesn't know how to drive because, as he says, the cars are different here. They're different now. He doesn't understand them. And even though the house is still the same, it's boarded up and covered with cobwebs. And there's obvious things that that show his confusion about the present day world. He doesn't quite grasp that 28 years has passed, which is an interesting angle and a sympathetic one. They do actually portray the mental illness that this man has with a somewhat sympathetic light, even though he is trying to carry out a dastardly plot and he probably pre-catatonic state was not necessarily a great person and they never give an excuse because obviously it's unknown as to how he got to that catatonic state we don't know what triggered this now i don't know how accurate the portrayal is and the information they're putting out about his various psychiatric diagnoses, especially since this was 1969 so we've come a long way in that field but they err on the side of portraying him as obviously disturbed and mentally ill and not necessarily villainous. He's carrying out a villainous plot, but he's also obviously negatively affected mentally. His humanity has been retained. And they do a great job of of showing that aside from him not being able to drive the cars, but also when he looks in the mirror and he sees himself as a young man 28 years ago. That's a pretty powerful representation of his delusion, probably more so than the, the ranting that he does, because he does quite a bit of ranting about restoring imperial rule and, and such. Now, I don't know very much about Asian culture. I don't know very much about ninjas. Everything I know about ninjas, I probably learned from television and movies, which means it's probably terribly, terribly flawed. So when Nagata, we first see Nagata and he, he comes over the fence, he's dressed all in black and he has the, the slippers and he's wearing this hood that's kind of pointed and he's got his glasses on and the, the hood is tied like and it comes across his mouth. I have no idea if that's how ninjas are supposed to dress but I do know that when I first saw him I'm like why is this dude looking like witchy poo? Because that was my first impression. So I don't know if that is accurate ninja aesthetic. But if it is, I would just say that it's not for everyone. Not every ninja can pull it off. But we do see him being very ninja-like in that he's creeping through this compound and he's doing it in some broad daylight, by the way. This isn't like a, a late night endeavor, it's, I don't know, in the morning. I'm not exactly sure what time of day it's supposed to be, but it's during daylight hours. And he comes creeping across this compound and breaks into this storeroom and steals the dynamite and then he kills the security guard. And the, the way that scene is set up is that you see this security guard come through the door, jerk it open, and Nagata turns and just basically throws his arm. And you see the guard react. You never really see the star fly and you don't see any blood. So this, they later remark about how the security guard's throat is torn and it's like, there is not a drop of blood to be seen. We don't even get any, a smear of, you know, the red nail polish that they liked to use back then. Nothing. So you're definitely using your imagination to visualize what the carnage would be because they, there's nothing. Nothing. Visually. In today's television, like, yeah, he would have been covered, but not so much in 1969. So we know he stole dynamite. We have no idea why. And Five doesn't know any more than we do. Danny does suggest that perhaps it's some kind of a kook, and to a degree, rudely correct. But then they poke around the storeroom, and that's when Steve finds the shuriken embedded in the wall. So when you see it, when the viewer sees it, you probably know exactly what it is, because you've probably seen enough references by this point in your life on television and in movies as to what it is. But I guess back in 1969, that was still rather a new thing. Possibly? I don't know. It was a new thing for 5.0. And they didn't know exactly what that throwing star was. It had blood on it, so they figured that had to have been the murder weapon. And the the medical examiner there was definitely like, well, yeah, totally, that could have done it. So I thought it was interesting that they took that to a martial arts expert to ask him, what is this? And so that's how we learn about the throwing star and about about how ninjas were, I guess, the ninjas that, that he's referencing is they used to be assassins. But as it's it's, he says, it's a lost art, and Steve's kind of like, I am holding this weapon. It has just been used to kill a man. Perhaps it's not as lost as everyone thinks. So as I said, we also see Nagata, he steals a car, and he doesn't do a very good job of driving. And when that first occurs, aside from giving the police officer an excuse to detain him and, and give 5 more information, basically... It's kind of curious that we just saw this dude break into this compound, effortlessly steal dynamite and kill a man, and then he's here trying to steal a car and he can't quite manage it. So it's obvious that something is up, but at that time in the episode, you don't know. And it's only later that you you realize that, oh, he doesn't know how to work these cars because cars back in 1941 were a lot different than now. And he takes that car to an abandoned house And he breaks into the house. You see him go through it, and it's obviously, it's abandoned. So it's full of cobwebs, and he is just running through them like he does not care if he gets spiders in his hair. And he gets to a room, and he, like, turns a knob or a switch or something, and a secret panel comes up, and it accesses another room. And it makes me really sad that I have yet to live in a house with a secret room or a secret passage. I feel cheated. Anyway, in there, he finds basically all of his pre-mental hospital stay life in there including the the size and we see him with those again after he kidnaps heather and takes her back to the house and he's doing his fantastical ranting towards her and scaring the daylights out of her at one point he chugs a bottle of sake and then takes the size and he starts using them like he's practicing and that is probably the most hilarious yet unhinged thing about Nagata because his unhinged ranting is quite good. And then he, you know, chugs the sake and starts doing martial arts. And understandably, it terrifies poor Heather because from the minute he walked into that clock shop, he has been operating on another level and she can't reach it no matter what she does. And it's terrifying. He is quite intense, and especially in the scenes in the house with her. He is very intense. You work in a clock shop, Komiko, but you do not feel time so deeply as I do. It's dreadful inevitability. Please listen to me. It must have been my mother that you knew my no, mother, mother. When I was a well. little boy, my mother said to me, little one, do you cry over just an ache? What will you do when your arm is cut off in the bottle? My hands hurt. Please, I'm dying. My hands hurt. We will. Corners under one roof. But in the midst of all of this, amidst the ranting and him insisting that Heather is actually Kimiko, and quoting Robert Louis Stevenson and all of that, you have this one moment where it's almost like the intense, unbalanced behavior goes a little too over the top and hits hilarity before it comes right back down. It breaks it. A, it breaks the scene a little bit, but not too much. You never really fully lose the tension that's been established there. In the meantime, you have Steve and Five O talking to the guy's psychiatrist from the hospital and then finding out about Heather and going to the, the clock shop and finding out that they, they took Heather Nagata. Hey, the names are similar. Maybe that they're, they're related. Turns out that yes, they are. Nagata is Heather's father, but Heather also believes that he died. So, they find out about this and find out about the house. So, we're getting bits and pieces as Five O is also getting bits and pieces kind of at a different time. But the thing is, is that until Five O gets to the house, we don't even know exactly what Nagata's plan is because we know he has dynamite, we know we saw him steal the clock. So, obviously, he's making a bomb, but for what purpose? And the fact that he's not exactly forthcoming with his ranting about imperial rule. He's not quite operating in the same level of reality as everybody else. Nothing really comes together definitively until we get to the house. And so when 5 gets there, they see on the wall, Danny sees it. They find the map first, but then they see on the wall that somebody has written. To hell with Babe Ruth. December 7, when the Zeros came in over Pearl, their pilots screamed in their radios to hell with Babe Ruth. Then they dropped the bombs. Pieces are beginning to fit huh? I actually looked this up because I had never heard this before. And in my lazy superficial research, from what I can find is that it seems like this has been repeated as fact even though it kind of started off as a joke as in from what i've read some of the soldiers jokingly said that that's what they were yelling when they were when the japanese were attacking and coming over the hills and stuff not necessarily not necessarily just pearl harbor but in all of their attacks that They were kind of like, it was a throw-off kind of a, oh yeah, they were yelling to hell with Babe Ruth as they were attacking. But then at some point, somebody interpreted that as fact and kind of gave basis for it to be an actual thing. And like I said, I didn't do intense research on this. I'm lazy. This was just superficial research. And this is basically what I gleaned from a quick internet search. Interesting nonetheless. I also did a really quick research on the Black Dragons because Takuma ends up attempting ritualistic suicide and botching it so he doesn't die immediately. And he ends up going to the hospital where Steve questions him and and Takuma admits that he and Nagata were part of the Black Dragons, which I actually looked up. It was a real group and it really did do what they talk about in the episode. Not so much sabotaging during Pearl Harbor. They didn't do that but they did operate in the United States and elsewhere trying to bring about Asian rule. Like I said, it didn't have anything to do with Pearl Harbor, but they did They did do some things during the 1960s in the States. So that's kind of an interesting use of, of real life, infusing that into this storyline. So once they get all of the, the facts together, Steve does actually put out a, a warning to Pearl Harbor to let them know that somebody is attempting some sort of attack on them. And then they have to try to figure out what Nagata's mission is, because Takuma dies before he can say. They need to figure out what his mission is, so they know how to stop him. Because that's what they figure out, is that for him, 28 years hasn't passed. He's going to complete this mission that he was supposed to do before he ended up hospitalized on December 6th, 1941. So to do that, they actually review the attack on Pearl Harbor. And then they find in the map, it's they have to put it up, I don't know if they x-rayed it, but they put it up to a special light, something that shows on the map arrows pointing to one thing. So immediately they're like, okay, they're going to attack, he's going to attack that. But Steve is like, no, he's going to attack Sand Hill. And they're like, that's in the opposite direction. And he's like, yeah, that's Japanese war strategy. I did not Google that. I did a quick Google on to help with Babe Ruth and the Black Dragons and some superficial research there, but I did not do any superficial research on Japanese warfare. I have no idea if that is accurate strategy or not but that's what Steve says and since he's the hero we're gonna go with that knowledge so that's how they know what Nagata is going to attack now it's just a matter of finding him and stopping him which of course they do but I'm not going to tell you how because that would ruin all of the fun but what I am going to tell you is the guest cast so, as I said, Yuko Takuma was played by Will Kaluva, and as I also said, he played Philip Lowe in By the Numbers. As I said, no- Yoshio Nagata was played by Mark Leonard. We'll actually see him in three more episodes. As I said, he's best known as Spock's father, Sarek, on Star Trek. He was also Emperor Thorval on the Secret Empire segments of Cliffhangers, and he was Aaron Stemple on Here Comes the Brides, and he was Urko on the Planet of the Apes TV series. He was also in Wild Wild West, Gunsmoke, Alias Smith and Jones, The Rookies, Mannix, Chopper One, The Magician, Little House on the Prairie, The Incredible Hulk, Buck Rogers, and In the Heat of the Night. He was in the movies The Radicals, Annie Hall, Noon Sunday, and Hang 'em High, and he was in the TV movie Getting Married. Heather Nagata was played by Virginia Wing. She also turned up in Route 66, Bracken's World, Emergency, Different Strokes, Law and Order, Third Watch, and Gotham. She was in the movies Hollywood Horror House, The Billion Dollar Hobo, Good Guys Wear Black with Chuck Norris and Ann Archer, Jekyll and Hyde, Together Again, and Colin Hart's K. She was also in the TV movie The President's Mistress with Larry Hagman, Bo Bridges, and Susan Blanchard. Dr. Lukens was played by Bruce Wilson. We'll see him in six more episodes. He had an uncredited role in Tora, Tora, Tora and The Hawaiians. He was also in the movies Pistolero Diablo and Deberion Carlos Antes. Jerry Minobi was played by Tommy Fujiwara. We'll see him in 23 more episodes. He also turned up on the TV shows Big Hawaii, Six Million Dollar Man, Charlie's Angels, Heart to Heart, Magnum P.I., Jake and the Fat Man, The Birds of Paradise, and One West Waikiki. He was also in the movie Goin' Coconuts with Donnie and Marie Osmond, and he was in the TV movie Waikiki. Captain Barnes was played by Philip Bolton. We'll see him in one more episode, and those are his only credits. Doc was played by Robert Briand. We'll see him in three more episodes. We've already seen him in The Big Kahuna. Officer Naaleu was played by Vince Eder. We'll see him in one more episode. He also turned up in I Spy, The Wild Wild West, CBS Playhouse, and Run for Your Life. And he has an uncredited role in Paradise Hawaiian Style, which was an Elvis Presley movie. Jenny was played by Patricia Toscano in this episode. It's her only credit. After this, Jenny will be played by Peggy Ryan. The security guard was played by Bo Vanden Ecker. We'll see him in 20 more episodes. He also showed up in The Man from Uncle, Combat, Magnum P.I., and Love Boat. He also has associate producer and director credits for later episodes of Hawaii Five-O. He also has stunt, costume, miscellaneous crew, and second unit director credits for various projects. And the lab technician was played by Yankee Chang. This is his fourth episode, and the first time we have not seen him as a bus driver. Our director was Nicholas Colasanto, and in the previous episode, I talked about his directing credits. But since we best know him as Coach from Cheers, let me talk a little bit about his acting credits. In addition to Cheers, he also showed up in Car 54, Where Are You?, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, My Favorite Martian, I Spy, Ironside, Run for Your Life, Mannix, and Kojak. He also turned up in the movies Raging Bull, Family Plot, and Fat City, and he was in the TV movies The Return of the World's Greatest Detective and Martinelli, Outside Man. Our writer is Anthony Lawrence. In addition to nine episodes of Hawaii Five-O, he was also the creator of The Sixth Sense and The Phoenix. He wrote eight episodes of Bonanza, two episodes of Outer Limits, three episodes of Ben Casey, five episodes of Rat Patrol, three episodes of Medical Center, three episodes of Room 222. He also wrote episodes of Columbo, Blue Knight, Gunsmoke, and Mod Squad. He has a screenplay credit for Paradise Hawaiian Style and the writing credit for Easy Come, Easy Go, both which are Elvis movies and he has the writing credit for the 1979 Elvis TV movie starring Kurt Russell. He also has the writing credit for the 1988 Liberace movie starring Andrew Robinson, as well as writing credits for the TV movies Stranded and Dark Ancients. And that is to hell with Babe Ruth. Yes, it is another problematic episode due to the racist casting, but it's actually quite good. The entire storyline is quite intriguing. The idea of someone sort of frozen in time, trying to complete an objective 28 years too late. It's also a rather sympathetic look at someone who has disassociated from reality so severely. Because even though you realize that this guy is carrying out a villainous act, that he probably wasn't a great person beforehand, you're also made to understand that he is severely unwell. I think it kind of starts to drag towards the end, but your mileage may vary. So yes, it's problematic, but it's also quite good. Give it a watch and see if you agree. episode 14 of Bookum Dano. Thanks so much for joining me as we start our journey through the second season of the 1968 Hawaii Five-O series. For me, the second season is a little bit weaker than the first, but still good nonetheless. And I do hope you enjoy it. And I do hope you stick around because even if it isn't that great, I'm going to do my best to make it a good time. If you would like to find me online, you can do that by going to my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. It is the home of Bookum Dano. And you can also follow me on Twitter at KikiWrites because if you think my research is lazy, just wait until you see my tweets. In the meantime, don't get involved in any death insurance schemes and make sure you carry out your saboteur plots in a timely fashion. Until next time, aloha.